What's up? And welcome to the first ever Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Graham. Dave, why does Bitcoin matter? Well, you know, Graham, it is the world's most popular cryptocurrency. It's also decentralized, meaning no person, authority, or organization controls it. For that reason, Bitcoin has the potential to upend traditional financial systems, those same systems that have failed people for centuries. Anyone with a computer can buy or receive it. It's programmable money free from tyranny, oppression, and hyperinflation. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you probably already know this. So why are we here? Well, the Bitcoin market is pretty variable, and there's a lot of information out there. To stay on top of this ever-changing landscape, we'll be guiding you through the major stories shaping the price, philosophy, and community around Bitcoin. Founded in 2012, Bitcoin Magazine is the original source of news, commentary, and thought leadership driving the revolution that is Bitcoin. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast aims to preserve that tradition. And we'll feature brief interviews from leading experts in the space, providing you with what you need to know and nothing else. So without further ado, here it is. The Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. Today, we're talking to Jameson Lopp about how to disappear while still staying connected to the modern world. But first, the news. Finally, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has published a clear framework for digital assets. The purpose of this framework is to give crypto companies and investors guidelines about whether a cryptocurrency is a security. The detailed framework comes after years of guidance by enforcement, where the SEC prosecuted ICO operators to set an example. This 13-page framework, attached in our show notes, is not intended to be law, but instead an analytic tool for thinking about ICOs. Skating around the legalese, there's not much new in the framework from what securities experts have been advising for some time. The real distinction comes from a clarification from the SEC that a token's definition as a security can ultimately change. China is again threatening cryptocurrency with a proposed ban on mining. The country's planning agency recently published a list of hundreds of business activities the agency would like to phase out because they did not meet relevant laws and regulations, either because they were unsafe, wasted resources, or polluted the environment. One of those activities added to the list was cryptocurrency mining. As of now, no target date or plan has been laid out for how to eliminate the country's crypto mining industry. A Cambridge University study from December stated that nearly half of Bitcoin mining pools are located in Asia. Experts speculate that this majority is probably based out of China. In past years, the Chinese government has made public claims on banning Bitcoin. Although this has never actually happened, they did ban ICOs in 2017. Currently, Bitcoin is defined in China as a virtual commodity. All financial institutions are prohibited in transacting or dealing with it. Cryptocurrency exchanges are banned, and Bitcoin mining companies require strict reporting. A court in Nova Scotia has approved a motion to move the case against Quadriga CX into bankruptcy proceedings. These developments follow Ernst & Young's fourth monitor report, in which the firm recommended bankruptcy reclassification for the case, and reported that the CEO, Gerald Cotton, mixed Quadriga CX business finances with his personal finances. Under bankruptcy proceedings, Ernst & Young will act as trustee and have far greater leeway to audit Quadriga CX's finances and business practices by reviewing documents from the exchange and by working directly with witnesses. So far, 119 Quadriga CX users have applied to represent approximately 115,000 customers affected by the exchange's shutdown in February. Of these, seven were selected to work with the monitor and law firms to examine court documents and communicate with other affected users in order to recover the missing $136 million. 
In Bitcoin Magazine's cover story, our reporter Colin Harper chronicles the journey of the Lightning Torch. The Lightning Torch was a single Lightning Network payment that was forwarded to Bitcoiners around the world via Twitter, with each user adding a few, or in some cases a lot of sats along the way. Launched by Holdelnot, a Bitcoin Twitter personality, it reached the likes of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and even an outspoken Bitcoin advocate living in an economically sanctioned Iran. Over its four-month run, it didn't just gain viral notoriety. The Lightning Torch made a real case for the power of a borderless, permissionless currency. In total, it passed through 278 unique participants from 56 countries and touched every continent outside of Antarctica, all without the help of a central authority. Now, it's speculated that the torch will burn out in the hands of Bitcoin Venezuela so they can use the over 7 BTC it has accumulated as proceeds to purchase food, medicine, and other necessities. The Bitcoin price eclipsed the $5,000 mark this month. Well, that's a pretty arbitrary threshold when the price passes a nice round number like that, people take notice. The mainstream media reported on it, and even though many Bitcoin hodlers claim not to care about the moderate price fluctuations, they certainly like to see the price going up rather than declining. In one of his latest price analysis videos, Bitcoin Magazine's Bitcoin Schmidtcoin called the next macro resistance level at $5,600. Instead, if the market fails to rally, it will retest the established support level at $4,700. Some speculators have claimed that the price increase is the start of the next bull market. Others, like major Chinese OTC trader Zhao Dong, expect the increase to encourage investors to leave the market, putting a new bull run off for as much as two years. Today, we're joined by Jameson Lopp. He's a Bitcoin engineer and the CTO of Casa. Lopp is a well-known advocate for digital privacy, and his decision to live off the grid following several cases of harassment was recently featured in a New York Times article. So, Jameson, why did you decide to pursue such a high level of privacy? Like, how did you go about doing it? So, you know, one of the problems, I think, with uh this day and age, the, the communication age and, and all the changes that have resulted from it is that it's very, very easy to go from being a low profile, you know, average person who's just going about their life to becoming a very high profile person who might get targeted by various bad actors. And so what I've tried to uh, tell people who you know, would immediately brush off most of this stuff as, you know, paranoia is that it can happen to anyone. Uh, this is not necessarily just for people who are, you know, uh, social media influencers or, you know, trying to be a public person. This really is for anyone who has uh, a digital footprint, who has a life on the internet, who might do or say things completely unintentionally that, uh, result in a lot of attention being focused on them by the global online community. Okay, so what was the first thing you did? Yeah, I mean, I started with a lot of the the popular resources out there. Um, there are various books uh, that are called like How to Disappear, you know, How to Become Invisible. Um, there are a few prominent privacy experts out there who have a lot of really good advice, at least good advice as of 
10 or 20 years ago. There's very good advice for like the analog things of like, how do you protect your home address and your mailing address and like the ownership of your private property. Um, I started off with a lot of that because that really is the harder thing to do uh, from a, a sort of resources and time and uh, finance perspective. So I, I started with that base of knowledge and started talking to attorneys uh, who could help me set up the legal mechanisms, the legal frameworks necessary for that. But then simultaneously, I was also thinking about all of the different attack vectors online and, you know, how do I ensure that none of my real information gets put into any database, uh, at least as far as I can control. Uh, that basically means that you have to set up, um, you know, other addresses, other phone numbers, other emails, uh, you know, other contact information that you can, you can still uh, get access if, if someone's trying to contact you through those means, but none of which should be pointing to where you really are. The ultimate, I guess, extreme part of all of this is, you know, in order to really disappear from the sense that it's very difficult for someone, even, even if someone like hires a private investigator who has access to fairly uh, protected confidential databases, um, if you want that level of protection, then you really have to throw away everything in your current life. Um, everything that is connected to your, your current uh, physical and digital identity. And so that's, that's what takes the most effort is, you know, how, to, how do you transition away from, from using your, your actual house as your mailing address, from, from using um, cars and other public property that's registered to you and your name and your address, and how do you, how do you set up it? everything that you need to live your normal life in a way that is not connected to you. And that's, that's what takes the most effort. You can, you can get a, a good level of online privacy from like marketing companies and other stuff. If you just spend a weekend configuring your, your computer and your home network to use things like VPNs and Tor and, and various ad blockers. But if you want to go, you know, deep dive all the way to the bottom of making sure that your your actual residence is not in any databases. That basically results in you having to start all over from scratch and, and build a, a completely new entity that is uh, very difficult to tie to your identity. So in the article, there's a lot about like what you did for your digital privacy. And I'm just curious for the rest of your life, like externally, was there anything you had to sacrifice? Like, is there... I'm sure there are like parts of this, parts of your life that we're not really thinking about that you've had to give up. Yeah. So one thing that I, I guess I haven't talked about as much, a few people have touched on it, but um, I really went to the, the uh, kind of a level beyond that where I, I want not only to make it difficult for external attackers all over the world to find me, but I actually want to protect myself even from unintentional data leaks. And by that, I mean the fact that, um, you know, people talk, we are social creatures and 
as soon as you reveal any bit of information to someone, you have to assume that they're going to talk about it to someone else. Not necessarily because they're a gossipy t- type of person, but this is just what people do. You have small talk, you, you, know, you, you talk to each other about what's going on in your neighborhood and whatnot. And so what I'm getting at is that um, where I am now, n- none of my neighbors or people that I interact with, none of the service providers that I talk to, none of them know my real name or identity. Uh, you know, I have a pseudonym for that. And um, you know, in order to maintain that pseudonym, that does mean that I can't have any you know, possessions or other things uh, inside my house. Like if, if someone is coming inside my house, I can't you know, have my um, like graduation diploma on the wall with my real name on it, for example. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that is, you know, even taking it to the next level where, you know, you can make an argument that, you know, I could probably be okay letting a few close friends here know, you know, who I really am and what's, what's kind of at stake and why I need to remain private. And, you know, they would probably respect my privacy but it's just not a risk that I'm willing to take. Was there anything that was like actually just surprisingly easy? That's uh, it's actually the only, the only thing that I think that was easy uh, was actually getting um, anonymous VPN set up. You know, there are a few VPNs out there that accept cryptocurrency. So you can basically acquire some Monero, for example, which is really hard to track. And then you pay for your anonymous VPN with uh, a third party uh, mailbox that you set up that is not tied to your identity and pay for it in crypto that can't be traced. And uh, I haven't had any problems with that. Um, I have had problems with other services that I've set up like, um, uh, basically phone number proxies and stuff. Those tend to be a lot less reliable than VPNs. Um, I even had some problems with the like physical mailbox uh, um, routing that I had set up. So I, I set up you know a variety of different um, private mailboxes that basically forward my my mail all over the place before it finally ends up at a destination where I can pick it up and. Um, it actually took me a few months to get that all working correctly. Uh, so I had I had a um, I had about a month's worth of mail that ended up in an infinite loop b- between a few of these uh, post office boxes, where they they kept just sending it back and forth to each other until I finally figured out uh, what was going on. Well, where does Bitcoin fit into your quest for privacy? Well, I mean, you know, Bitcoin does not have the. Uh, strongest level of privacy so i i mean i don't make purchases with bitcoin uh that need to be uh, highly private um you know i'm definitely keeping track of advances in the space like with better um mixing software that's coming out and uh, I'm, i'm hoping that someday in the not too far future i'll be able to have a, a higher degree of confidence that my actual funds are private um it's just you know pretty much all of the the crypto that i've acquired over the years has been through exchanges that do aml kyc so i i assume that pretty much all of it is trackable except you know with the exception of maybe the monero um and you know even the the, the zcash uh, that i've gotten over the years uh, i have not been 
using like the shielded addresses on that uh, simply because not a lot of the, the wallet software out there has made it easy to do so. So, um, you know, most, most of that, I, I don't even really touch it that often in the first place. So I, um, mostly think of it as something that I'm, I'm waiting for the privacy to improve on rather than, um, using it in order to improve my privacy. I, I would say that there is a, a fairly strong argument that, some of the more conventional payment methods I've set up are arguably more private uh, than Bitcoin. And, and by that, I mean, um, you know, setting up anonymous LLCs that have bank accounts and then tying other uh, throwaway uh, virtual debit cards to those anonymous LLCs, bank accounts, and really setting up like multiple uh, layers of, of proxies and abstractions away from my actual identity. What could your average person easily do to be more private? The, the, you know, the easiest thing to do, like I, I, I said, was you can spend a few hours or a weekend doing a configuration of your computers and your network to help protect you uh, from online marketers. And that is, that's like the, the really low-hanging fruit. If you want to go to the next level, then uh, you could, you know, for example, try to get rid of the tracking device that you carry around in your pocket. Uh, so, you know, um, setting up a, a new phone that is not connected to your identity isn't too difficult. Um, it's a little more complicated than I thought it would be. Like, I thought you could just go into any uh, gas station and buy a burner phone like they did in The Wire. But... Um, it's, it is still possible to do that as well. And, um, you know, that would, I think, that would protect you from a lot of different things. You know, not only the mobile uh, phone companies, but any number of applications that might be running on your phone and, like, reporting location data that's tied to your identity. If your house is burning down, what is the one thing you would grab? My dog. He's uh, uh, an integral part of my security system. Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. This episode was produced and edited by myself and Dave. Stories covered in this episode come from articles written by Bitcoin Magazine staff, including Peter Chihuahua, Colin Harper, Jimmy Akee, and Aaron Van Weirdham. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. Special thanks to our guest, Jameson Lopp, and of course, Satoshi Nakamoto. We are eternally grateful. Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer -peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find more engaging crypto podcasts over at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com. And you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes and news. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. And if you've got the time, please leave us a review. It really helps us improve the show and reach new listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.